Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Shankleberg. And this is Chris Jackson. And Fred and I were talking about... Vociferously (laughs) for 20 minutes. (laughs) And then then we thought, you know, we may as well share our rant with the world. Whether all organizations are changeable, which is, I think is a key topic for reliability engineers because many of us, especially those who aren't senior in the hierarchy or higher up in the hierarchy, sometimes feel helpless. They just can't change the organization in a way that allows them to do what they think they need to do to be efficient reliability engineers. Now, I'm a bit more... Sorry. I mean, we talked about a handful of different um, forces or barriers to, and one of them is the rotation of, of senior managers and each one has to make a name for themselves or make their mark. And, and so sustaining a long-term effort to change something is very difficult in those cases. Um, I think, and I'm trying to remember some of the others are like military the contract for something is 15 years prior for a new weapon system. And the folks that are implementing it are just following the letter of the contract instead of the the idea of the or the spirit of the contract. And you, and you know what I'm talking about, Chris, is that they do yeah. an FMEA to check the box because that's what their contract says they have to do, independent of actually using it for anything useful. There's plenty right. of barriers to that. And, and there's also, I submit that there's a barrier where people feel it, one of the uh, comments I got last week from somebody that was explaining this kind of scenario is that it's an insurmountable obstacle. All right. No, I don't think so. Right. So, and so just to clarify where, where Fred and I differ is I'm more pessimistic and Fred's, I, I think more optimistic. I, I think the scope or the fraction of organizations that are changeable is lower or our capacity to change organizations is lower than what Fred puts that estimate to be. So that's the key difference between the two of us in this conversation. Is that a fair call? Well, I'd say that's true. And it, and, and obviously I haven't you know, engaged with every organization in the world mm-hmm. to try to do that. The, yet many of the ones I've been asked to help to make changes have made changes and some I haven't asked. I, I'm thinking of the no MTBF deal. A couple of weeks ago, I actually got an email saying, you know, I send people there all the time and it's making a difference in, in our organization. And, and um, years ago, uh, a major uh, computer company, not where I used to work, but another one said, we have, by policy, have banned the use of MTBF and MTTF in all of our contracts and all of our discussions with vendors. And I was like, in all of our analysis, internal metrics and everything else. And I'm like, well, that'll work, you know? So when I started talking about MTBF and saying this is not useful, people would say, well, you can't change that. That's so embedded. Like, yeah, you can. <laughs> it might take a while. It might take some knocking some heads together to go, you know, somebody just needs to stand up and say, you know, that really makes no sense whatsoever. You know, you are, make, you are deliberately setting yourself to make bad decisions. And I can do that as a consultant because I don't have a whole lot to risk to, to do that. And it's actually landed me more jobs than not 
so it, it yet the, this this it was a young guy is is relatively new in, in reliability engineering was saying the system is what it is and it's really and he's describing this bureaucracy that's over the top and how do i go about changing that and he says well let's talk about it you know if somebody doesn't start it'll never get changed is kind of the basic message i have on this i agree with that and i think you can talk about examples where you have successfully enacted change but i also point out that is not what we would call a representative sample in the world of reliability engineering the fact that people are approaching you in the first place means that from a strategic perspective they're looking for an open to change um well, well it's funny though it, it's and I don't think I'm the only one that's making change happen. I, I really doubt that's the case. I, I can't believe that. I've learned so much from other folks about what to do and how to go about doing this and think through these problems. I mean, I, I had one client, uh, he, was a, he was actually in a pretty senior position in the organization and, and was routinely part of the board meetings, you know? And so he was, you know, uh, wasn't C-level, but pretty darn close in, in this organization. and called me up and says, can you come out and do an assessment for us? And, and I knew him. It's a small world in our in reliability and quality. And I said, what do you need me for? You know more about this stuff than I do. And he says, well, the organization has stopped listening to me. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and it could be all kinds of different reasons why they said, no, you know, things are going well. You're doing a good job. Don't bother us anymore. Kind of thing. And so I sat down with him and I said, why don't you just tell me what you're trying to propose to him? And I'll write it up in my report. And he goes, no, 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 no. You need to go do your job. And I want to compare what I think we need to do to what you're doing. And we were pretty close. I think he had one thing I didn't catch and I had one thing he didn't catch. So we called it even. And I wrote up my report and he presented it. I wasn't even in the room. He presented my findings, which were mostly his. And they accepted every one of them, signed off at it and funded it. And do I get credit for changing their organization? And it was, some of it was cultural stuff, you know, akin to the procurement organization looking for the cheap stuff all the time. But it was that sometimes it's just the communication. It's sometimes you need somebody from far away to come talk to your organization. And other times it's saying, you know, this doesn't make sense. Look at it. If we spend a thousand dollars here, it'll cost us $10,000 in the next couple of years. Or do you want to do it right and spend $5,000 and save the 10,000? You know, and yeah, I can go through a bunch of examples, but the idea is, is that until somebody stands up and says, you know, this doesn't make sense, you got to do something about it. And sometimes you got to find cover, you got to find the right supporters, you got to build a, you've heard me call it a beachhead process. Even as a very junior engineer, if you get a handful of people that support an idea to make a change and it just starts happening and then it, and when it becomes successful, you say, you know, that's because we did this. And other parts of the organization go, oh, okay, well, if they can do it, uh, what, what can we do to make something better? You know, it's change breeds change in my mind if it's right. successful. 
Yet until somebody stands up and says, all right, we're going to do something different here. We're going to break some rules. We're going to get in an exception. We're going to say this is safety critical. So we have to push it through beyond the, the bureaucracy, whatever, just make it happen. And then when it's successful, um, make sure others know about it so that it helps encourage other people to make changes. So I won't, I won't disagree that there is a fraction of organizations out there who have the capacity to change. And I've certainly been involved with some of those organizations and it feels, you know, really good to, to be part of that process. Mm-hmm. You go and you help them and all of a sudden they, they're, they're on a, you know, a higher plane, so to speak. And they realize it. They work. They realize that we did this. We work. Oh, now we start start to get it. And they're the ones who keep coming back. So we want to keep going, doing more and more and more. So I'll agree with you wholeheartedly. There is a percentage of organizations out there who can change. And that itself is a continuum. Sometimes it's organizations who, for whatever reason, need to hear it come from a consultant before they believe it to be true. You know, plenty of those. (laughs) Well, some Um, just need the entire senior staff fired and bring in a new group that is amenable uh, to change. That happens too. (laughs) But I think what, at least, um, there there is a fraction of organisations out there who will not change, who cannot change, cannot do it. Um, No matter what you do as a reliability engineer, at a lower level. I think all the examples you've talked about, Fred, I would argue that this it's a really significant role that leadership plays. And sometimes leadership is knowing when to get out of the way. Yeah. Saying, you know what? I don't need to be involved in every process to feel good about myself. And so therefore, I'm going to let my team do it. I'm not going to simply sit back and trust everything they say, I'll interrogate them and I'll want to understand what it is they come up with. That's what good leadership is. But if they come up with ideas and I understand where they're coming from, then they're the ones who are going to lead the change. They're the ones who I'm going to support and enforce change and they're the ones who are going to get credit. That's We've come across plenty of those as well. Mm-hmm. But then there are organizations who are never, ever, ever going to change because they're structured in a way where, and then we talked about part of the conversation that got us here is look at look at Western militaries, the US DOD, the Australian um, Department of Defense, UK uh, I mean, Ministry of Defense. Exhibit number one is Milham Book 217 was was canceled, not to, right. removed, said do not use in anything ever again. 25 right. years ago, and it's still used industry wide, and it's just all the time. I'm like, well, as our for me, Mill Standard 1629, it's been cancelled, but yeah. you know, unless you comply with it, it's not called a for But I think it comes, you know, my thesis on that topic is that those militaries we talked about, those Western militaries, haven't won anything significant since World War II. And so, um, and there is a good, there's a couple of gray areas we could debate about, but realistically, the Vietnam War, Afghanistan War, uh, Korean Wars, it's, it's uh, technically still going. Um, yeah, there have been sort of what we call minor operations, which you could call success, and they've been rebadged as wars. But realistically, the some of the bigger ticket items where you needed national strategic, you know, planning and all the rest, we haven't won, haven't come close to winning, but it hasn't hasn't involved. A wholesale reevaluation of the generals and and uh, and, and civilian civil civil servants who who right. essentially 
led the charge to failure that no one knows, no, no one's associated with failure anymore, I'd argue, in those sorts of organizations. And because failure is not a problem, success isn't a thing. And so we have these bureaucratic superhighways, which are now how I describe money, Mr. Western militaries, and all of a sudden making making reliable stuff is actually, from their perspective, complying with a really complex process as opposed to good engineering. And that's the problem. Well, so, that problem's not unique to the military, though. It's no, the it's a, you know organizations that rotate managers kind of as a, a way to get them in different positions of increasing responsibility, and they move every eighteen months or two years. It's based on a military formula where you get yes, yeah, so posted to different assignments, and and you become a more rounded. You understand different parts of the organization, yeah, working ops, and you know yep. all this other stuff, and it. It's the theory is, is that you make, you know, informed or, or empathetic or, you know, knowledgeable leaders for your organization. And you get bureaucrats is kind of what I'm getting at. Um, in the oil and gas industry, um, they move a lot. It was amazing to me when I got to know people there. And it was rare that the team I started with was 50% still there a year later uh, when I was working on projects with them. They we're very adept at picking up where they left off and they bring in new ideas and stuff. And sometimes that caused havoc to a program that's, you know, halfway through its pro its start. And now the objective changes, that's a problem yet. They were pretty good about why and when and, and justifying what they were doing. Yet. One of the things I saw in the, the bigger companies is that when this is a big project, we're going to bring up a new refinery, for example, that's a multi-year, that's a long project to bring it up and get it operational and starting from in, in overhauling a system or something. It's not something somebody can oversee and do in 18 months. Mm -hmm. And so they would assign somebody and say, hey, Chris, you're going to be on this assignment in Houston for the next five years or 10 years. Hey, cool. You get to buy a house. We'll help you with that. You know, <laughs> because they're if they're moving every 18 months, you know, buying a house may or may not make any sense kind of thing. and they separated the ones that were long-term assignments. So like if you're in a, a product division and you needed to do an overall, you know, restructuring to it and, and put it all together, it's not enough to change all the boxes and then move out. It, you need to make it work. And that takes a long-term commitment. Um, yet I've seen it in many organizations that I've worked with is that they, you know, we rearrange the deck chairs and and then I'm off. I'm off to my next assignment. And it's like, oh, you know, and the next person comes and well, I don't like where everything is. Let's change it again. And it just creates havoc within an organization. Um, so I, yeah, I don't, and it was one of the questions I got last week uh, in a discussion was I identify, I can, understand and my peers that I talk to in the, in the team I'm on understand that it's a long-term problem. There's a massive culture mm -hmm. here and there's a lot of bureaucracy that's the bureaucracy itself becomes an entity and and yep. keeps itself alive. And I think we've talked about that before. Well, that's, if, that always happens when value is not a problem. Yeah. But, <laughs> but know, the issue is, if is there that, are values, it's systemic. Yeah. Now I'll concede that there are some organizations that has such a bureaucracy headwind or such a, a cultural headwind that it's 
the way they phrased it was it's an insurmountable obstacle. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, if you start chipping away at the foundation of this thing and you start identifying where you can make changes and start recruiting other like-minded folks to start making changes, then you can say it's not changeable after you've tried. But I think there's a handful of people that are mistaking it's not possible or impossible. What's the, there's a quote, I don't know who said it is this, if you think you can, or if you think you can't, you're right. You're right. Yep. Right. So yeah, maybe I'm more of a pest or an optimist is that, well, you got to at least try, you know, run into the brick wall a few times before you find out how thick it is. I agree with that. <laughs> but I think there's, once you run into the brick wall and you've got a couple of sustained concussions, you realize this brick wall is not going anywhere. Um, yeah, then it's get your resume ready. But going back to what you talked about, I love that phrase, well-rounded leaders of tomorrow. They need to be exposed to finance and logistics and everything else. Mm-hmm. Now, I have seen that work very poorly in many organizations, and here's why. First reason is when they say, well, we need to have these people well-rounded so they gain experience before they become CEO and the boss of the world. That means you need to pre-select your high performers or what you pre-select or pre-ordain the leaders of tomorrow yeah. when they're oh, exposed. Yeah. Bill's, yeah, Bill's on the fast track. So he's here as a fast tourist track. for, say, 18 months and then he's Right. <laughs> People on the fast track, we need to turn them to well-rounded individuals. So we need to have boom, boom, boom all over the place, which means, again, they are their, their, their role is not to change anything, no matter what anybody says, it's to get more experience as soon as being in charge of an organization is is uh, as soon as a person being in charge of an organization is uh, selected based on rounding out their experience the organization by definition is not serious about making that organization successful because you select the best person for the job for that organization it's not just an internship for people on the fast track that's, yeah, I call that's it, the issue. I call it, it it's industrial tourism. They, they get it. Right. There you go. <laughs> tourism or terrorism. Um, but yeah, um, depending on the culture. Yeah. Right. So that's the first issue. It just promotes nepotism. And secondly, by extension of the first one, is the you, you don't value those organizations being successful in their own right when that industrial tourism is uh is a main main benefit. The third uh, yeah, uh, I well, go ahead with the third one. I, I've got an objection on this one. But... All right. Yeah, you always object to stuff. Right, so yeah. It's, it's yeah. not a podcast between you yeah. and me without an objection or two. That's but right. uh, the third thing is, I think this is something that a lot of people forget or, or don't, you know, I see it's, you know, again, I just see it in these sort of overly bureaucratic corporate military organizations is as soon as you have an industrial tourist in charge of your group, you go as a young engineer or young specialist or young technician or young manufacturer, you say, you know what? I can't aspire to be in that position anymore. I'm ambitious. I'm working really hard. I want to get promoted. But if there's going to be a ceiling which above which I cannot go because that position is reserved for industrial tourists, which is a phrase I like. I'm going to borrow that, Fred, if you don't yeah, mind. You just did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll attribute the author. But, um, yeah, okay. <laughs> but th- that, then set, that then sends a message to that young engineer that their skill sets aren't, skill sets aren't valued and they're going to move on. The, the ambitious ones you want to keep are going to move on. And as a rule, you don't even know what you've lost 
until perhaps one day you look at their LinkedIn uh, profile or what have you and you realize they're taking over the world somewhere else. Yeah. And even that's rare in many organizations who have their blinkers on. Yeah. No, um, I, I agree with culture. that. No, although I've run into a couple of organizations, to your third point, actually, is what my where my objection was going, is you know, as a junior engineer, you know, you, you see that there's some problems in the organization you're in, and you have this, you know, fast tracker is in charge. Part, I mean, it's not like the that's the one person destined because there's 20 others in the mill. You know, they're going mm-hmm. through the other rotations and stuff. And there's only one's going to win for that generation. And win might not be the right word. So part of the idea is to appeal to, hey, it looks like you're going up in the world. You know, how successful do you need to be here to stand out to your peers? And it's a blunt comment to somebody that says, you know, you're only here for a short time. What are you going to do to make a difference? Here's, by the way, here's three proposals that if you really improve the maintenance program of this operation, or if you fix the, the, the reliability culture around designing good products, you'll stand out and it'll follow you in a le- as a legacy that you made such a, a wonderful difference here. And as a junior engineer, you can appeal to the ego of somebody that believes they're on the fast track, yet it's what is it that motivates them? You know, if they're a prima donna and don't want to listen to anybody, well, yeah, then you got to wait for the next one to rotate to and help them, uh, you know? But the idea is, is that there's always an angle. There's always a, a, a motivation for people to actually do something well, to build their resume, to, to make accomplishment. It might also be they generally want to make a difference that benefits things. They only got there a month ago. They don't know all the details and stuff. So you walk in with a silver platter saying, you know, if you do this, this, and this, it'll save us $400 million. And, you know, the downside is you might never leave this organization because you, you're linchpin to making it successful. And, and they go, hmm, okay, let me think about that. Well, um, I, I take your point, but I wouldn't say in that organisation. I, I would not. If I'm that young engineer or middle-aged engineer or archaic engineer and I'm waiting <laughs> for the getting right... getting personal now. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm waiting for the right industrial tourist to come through, so okay, not this time around. Next two years, I'll just, you know, bide my time. I'll wait till the next guy comes around. Maybe yeah. it can appeal to him. Yeah, that's and frustrating. Then, yeah, that's frustrating. But then when I say, hey, here's what I think you should do to set yourself up for success, all of a sudden, he's the one or she's the one which essentially owns all the outcomes because you're selling it to them. Hey, if you do this, you will then be seen as a person who owns the outcomes of that. Well, now, what we're learning. Yeah, you know, I do that at all levels. It's, I don't know where there's a quote on this too. I, I've been spending too much time with Carl. He loves quotes. Um, <laughs> that the idea is, is that if the outcome is to improve the reliability of your product or of your system or improve the culture of, you know, around you concerning reliability or whatever you're trying to change, who cares who gets credit for it? You know, I'll tell it you really who does doesn't care. matter. Well, I'll you tell do. you who does care. <laughs> the younger generations care because um is the gen z gen z's the gen z's the millennials it's 
the, the writing, the tea leaves is quite obvious that they are sick of archaic hierarchical organisations where if they do the work, then the more senior person gets the credit. They care. And so yeah, you want. You know, I, I, so I'm thinking of is if I, you know, I'm I recounting, <laughs> no, if I'm a millennial and I'm going into a new you know, opportunity and he says, so what have you done? He says, well, take a look at this. And these three parts of the organization I've been in, I've been a part of this happened, this happened, this happened. And that didn't happen in any of the other divisions or other organizations. And the one common denominator as I was there in each one of them. And if you're honest about it, they were all making reliability improvements. And I was the reliability guy in each one of those things. Mm-hmm. Well, your name's not all over this. Well, you have to, you, you need other people to be successful at making changes in a culture. And other people enjoy taking the credit for it and they work harder for it if they believe it's in their idea, there's their concept. That's not by accident. You know, and I, I pull out my book of Machiavelli and say, you know, I learned a lot. <laughs> there's ways to get things done that you really don't need to take credit for it and have your name all over it. That, and sometimes it's risky. What if it doesn't work out? Well, now, you know, Bill's the one that did that. That was his idea. And I can walk away from it. But no, seriously, I I think in order to implement change, you need to enroll other people to where they believe it's their idea. Otherwise, they're not mm-hmm. going to work on it very hard. And you know I, that from just leadership I, stuff. I do, uh, but I also I will tell you another story. When I was working working at an organization, and we had some one of the most selfless employees I've ever seen. She was um, uh, she just viciously focused on um on, on fixing a problem let's call it that can't go too much deeper it's not it's along it's not reliability centric but it's along the lines philosophically mm-hmm. of she saw a organizational strategic problem and she said i'm going to fix this and everyone knew that she fixed this but it took a huge toll she worked overtime without getting paid she developed cancer and while she was on leave under getting radiation and chemotherapy she didn't stop, couldn't stop. She wasn't like when she left, no one else was taking over the reins. So she sold so much of who she was to the organization without getting much in return. Mm-hmm. And when I came across a similar scenario where, um, you know, I had an opportunity to, uh, to perhaps do something similar, people told me that I should speak with this lady. And because she was the one who was able to finally ram this change through and i think all told it took three and a half years for her to get it through from start to finish she didn't get promoted she stayed in the same job she moved to a slightly bigger offer office she didn't get a salary increase and the personal toll it took on her was obvious she was Mm -hmm. very proud of her efforts but when I spoke to her, it was just so obvious that it just took so much out of her and her capacity to do the same thing again was completely done. It was mm-hmm. gone. Yeah, like you yeah. tell when she's giving me advice, she's saying, just so you know, it's going to be like this, it's going to be like that. You have to do this. You have to do that. And her ability to support was completely, she, mentally she was gone. She was done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are scenarios like that where, Yep. If I am going to get make the change, I just saw how the organization treats someone 
who does that. She saved the organization tens of millions of dollars. Tens of millions of dollars. And she actually was working for those industrial tourists. But that organization, I mean, I didn't stay there. I knew they were bleeding talents. I knew HR was was very aware of what's going on there. All that had all the exit in, exit interviews and everything else. And going, mm-hmm. how how why aren't people taking this seriously? And they were just as frustrated as anybody else. But that is an organisation where technically the capacity of change existed. But if you have to sell your soul, and I think she believed that she was going to get more out of it in terms of recognition and professional growth, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. than she did. It's just not going to happen. People are going to leave. And the scenarios you're talking about, it sounds like culturally your organisation was simply more open to uh, to, to apportioning. Well, yeah, no, I begrudgingly agree with you. And there are some organisations I said, you know, Hey, this is not. I've heard, you, I've heard you walk away from clients when you've thrown your arms in the air. So I oh, know. Oh, yeah. No, you know, and I, and, and there's others that I have a lot of passion for. And I'm, I'm thinking of ASQ. And it's like, you know, and I, you know, I had people saying, hey, you should be on the board of directors. And I says, you know, I really don't, I care a lot. And I have met a lot of great people about amazing opportunities and, and the organization has a lot of potential to do good yet. I'm not willing to, like you described this, this woman put in that much effort and, and this is not a battle I want to take. And and there's a, uh, you got to pick and choose. And I think it's, you know, after you run your head into the the wall, the first time is you got to sit down and think, when your brain settles back down and stop wiggling around <laughs> is, you know, is this worth doing or do I move on or do I accept? You know, what I run into is that there's so many people that look at it and go, I don't even know where to start. And I'm like, right. well, just think a little more creatively, try this or try this, you know, get some, the revolution doesn't start happen until somebody says, you know, this isn't right. And right. so it's, not suggesting everybody become revolutionaries, but the idea is, <laughs> is that it's until we we saw a problem that uh, procurements was you know getting this bonus because and I use this as a generic story for lots of places. But if your procurement organizations get in a bonus when they get ten percent cost reduction year over year, and it's causing field problems because they're buying parts that just don't work anymore, that's got to change. Right and do the homework, get the proposal together. And, and at some point you got to say, do you want me to tell your boss or should you? And here's the evidence. Here's the story. Here's the case. Until somebody actually puts that together and presents it and, and talks about it. One of the ways I knew it was successful when I was at HP is I created a chart. I think you've seen it, Chris, is we called it the V chart. It showed the amount of warranty we're paying as a percent of net revenue um, 10 years ago, uh, five years ago, and now. And it was five years ago, we were doing great. And that was after sustained effort to, to reduce it. And we found what the current warranty was, and it was back up to what it was when they started trying to reduce it. And 
we used it in a handful of slides and presentations and showed it to anybody that would care to, to listen to us. And then we knew we made the corner when we started seeing it in, in executive briefings and all hands decks and people were saying, this is a problem and, and I need to solve this. And it was like, perfect. <laughs> right. Got their attention. They're now, you know, we didn't get credit for it. We didn't have anything else yet. The group I was in was getting invited to, you know, very senior management meetings and, and being consulted on at very high levels in the organization of how to make sustaining changes. And that's professional recognition, though. Yeah, and that's rewarding it, in its own right. It was. It was very rewarding. Then I left. Because I thought, All right. My <laughs> job here is done. <laughs> I had other opportunities. So. Right. But, but anyway, it, it's one of those things, Chris, I think the, I agree that there's some organizations it's just you're just going to get destroyed if you try yeah. or you it or you wither away at it and unfortunately you got to pick the battles i i concede that i disagree that until you actually try you don't know whether it's impossible or not and i, I and you might have to try a number of times yet i i guess it's a cautionary tale don't put your passion into it and destroy your health to 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 make it work Yet it's possible. And I've got plenty of examples where it's possible. And you're right, Chris. I have walked away from organizations and clients going, no, you're on your own. <laughs> I can't help. I you. get to push back there because I completely agree with what you're saying. You've got to try. You should never say they're not going to change without you trying to make stuff happen. Yeah. I agree with, I 100% agree with that. You can't, you, you might be plenty of organizations where people have been pleasantly surprised, especially when, they learned a good example, good case, lots of lots of good cases are where they just don't know how to make the business case. I mean, the verbal mm -hmm. business case, the elevator business case. Yep. They, their yep. business case is all about what they want to say versus what the boss needs to hear. Um, right. And when we flip this, the narrative, all of a sudden, the organisation they thought was immovable turned out to be very open to well-argued business cases. So I completely agree with you that you need to try. But once you've tried and you've hit that brick wall a rudimentary number of times, there are organizations that no matter what you do, they're not going to change. Yeah. And if they do change, it's after three and a half years of solid effort, working on your weekends, working overtime, substantial personal health tolls and personal mental health tolls. And uh, you don't get you always get associated with that from your peers, but then the leadership give you zero zero reward. No, yeah, that's, that's, that's not a good change. that's not a good scenario. Yeah, now there's so what I'm curious about, Chris, is if you know for our audience, you're listening to this. Have you tried? You know, how's it working? It'd be the the stories I'd really like to hear. What barriers have you running into? Maybe a a different approach or a different couple of ideas of how to to, uh, you know, not break down that wall or barrier that you have? Um, or are you fully in a non-changeable unit here? You know, let us know, and maybe we can help you find another position. But the idea is, is that, you <laughs> <Sorry>. know, <laughs> let us know. Um, it's an area that I've run into a couple of times. And, you know, Chris, you and I have talked about it a handful of times. Uh, well, how do you go about changing a culture and how, how do you improve the organization's 
uh, posture. And we're talking it from a reliability point of view, but it mm-hmm. applies in any scenario. Yeah, sure. So, you know, what what's worked for you? What success stories have you had? Or what barriers or hurdles have you had? Or, or if you're just looking for how to get started, you know, let us know. We'll, we'll be happy to give you some ideas or tips and most likely end up with another podcast on the topic. Um, and I hope that we might give you some, might give them some hugs as well. Cause it might be a yeah. counseling emotional session. support. Yeah. Emotional yeah. support of nothing else. Um, I know there's a, a, a chipper going on down near me. So hopefully that's not coming through the recording, but anyway, you can get a hold of Chris or I, a couple different ways. You can go over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash S O R find a couple of ways to leave us a note or a message or question there. Chris and I and the other hosts are available through LinkedIn and our about pages. So there's plenty of ways for you to get in touch. Uh, it'll have to be a virtual hug most of the time, unless you happen to live close to one or either of us. But other than that, um, we wish you well with whatever activities and change uh, you're trying to invoke within your organization and wish you well to make it happen. So with that, Chris. Absolutely. With that, I think we've just changed the world. There's going to be so many. We have, yes. Yeah, definitely. Now we just want to hear the success stories. Yeah. So anyway, Absolutely. thanks, Chris. Uh, yeah, we should hit record like an hour ago when we first started chatting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good topic. Talk to you later, Chris. Have a good one, Fred. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.